Wretched Radio begins in three, two, one. To convince a child to keep walking, try switching roles with them. Let the child play the role of the parent. They'll immediately do what you want them to do. You are raising in your home people that the Bible is very clear about their status. They need to be converted. Not just a conformity of their behavior. They need a transforming encounter with the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is the ultimate priority. It's time for Wretched Radio with Todd Friel. Thanks a lot. Dad, this is Wretched Radio. Nothing more than feeling. The father of modern theology is the man, at least in great part, we can thank for, well, pretty much the mess that we're in these days, inside of the church and out. Who is the father of modern theology? It is one Friedrich Schleiermacher. That's right. Those Germans helped contribute to the melees that we see in our culture where up is down, down is up. A girl can be a boy. Pink is now yellow. Why are we living in a world where truth, objective truth, is so roundly, soundly, roundly denounced? The answer in part is the father of modern theology. You may recall here on Wretched Radio, we will visit individuals throughout history, the 1900s, the 1800s, who reflected at least a seed, the germ of the worldview that is so prevalent these days. And that is, there's no truth. The individual determines what truth is. We didn't get here overnight. This took time. This took centuries. Why? Because it ain't easy to override the obvious. You got stuff. There's a stuff maker. How hard is it to disprove that? Well, it's impossible ultimately, but it takes a lot of effort to get rid of God. And to get rid of him, you must get rid of his objective morality, his objective truth, his objective righteousness, and let every man be a ruler unto himself. And Frederick Schleiermacher, who lived between the years 1768 and 1834, who is dubbed the father of modern theology, is the father of modern liberal theology. Now, there were some who predated Schleiermacher. Uh, You had Kant, he didn't help. Hegel undermining objective truth. But really, Frederick Schleiermacher, I think, contributed even more than those fellows to the undermining of truth. Let me take you to a book, A History of Western Philosophy and Theology. Yes, it's as galloping a read as the title insinuates. Oh, I got to tell you, every time I read a philosophy book, I am reminded, and I'm just going to use the word hate. I hate philosophy. I just hate it. It just it's it's just it's such a mental gymnastic exercise that forces me to just think in ways that it's like, come on, why are you working so hard at this? Take a look at reality. Duh, pretty much operates like this. Now, how can we connect the dots? How, how did we how did all of this happen? We can intuit some things, but philosophers, they take ideas, experiences, and they turn it into such a bowl of mush that it makes my head crack open. Let's see if we can learn, however, something from the theologian-slash-philosopher Frederick Schleiermacher, to whom we can say thanks. Thanks a lot for the state that we're currently in. His book, The Christian Faith, probably closer to the first systematic theology book, than any other book that had been written up to that time, Schleiermacher does not believe that religion should be derived from natural theology or philosophical reasoning, nor does he think that religion can be reduced to morality. So what is religion to Schleiermacher? He's convinced there's something distinctive about religion, and he wants to uphold its uniqueness. And he does that through a German word, you're going to hear the root, gefiel. G-E-F-U with an umlaut, H-L, gefeel, feeling. And he calls that feeling intuition. And he lets that intuition 
reign supreme in the life of every individual, that it is the feeling that determines reality. He uses religious consciousness, but for Schleiermacher, Christian doctrines are accounts of the Christian religious affections set forth in speech. So the immediate source of knowledge about God isn't the scripture, it's not doctrines, it's not church tradition, but religious feelings. Now, this was back, what, 200, let me see if I can do my math on this one. He was back in 1930, almost 200 years ago. So when you see people making such eye-crossing statements that deny the reality of truth and that morph it into something that is totally foreign to reality, you can thank guys like Schleiermacher. This did not happen overnight. This, this is coming from the church. This is coming from a theologian. 200 years ago, these concepts, the foundation of foolishness was being laid by these guys. Scripture records the faith of the first disciples and communicates that faith, a religious feeling. So when you run into a contradiction, so when church people are fighting, whether it's Reformed and Lutheran, Catholic, Protestant, whatever, deal with that contradiction by appealing to the feeling that we all share. Doctrine doesn't divide. Well, if it does, feelings unite. It is a worldview that is imported into Christianity that we are now seeing in full bloom today. This principle is common to liberal theologians that divine revelation cannot take the form of propositions, information, or doctrine. Doctrines, they're created by human beings out of the reflection on their religious. Feelings. Now, you're probably having to endure some of this because that philosophical lingo. I'm trying to stress feelings that John Frame has identified the source from which liberalism sprang and that feelings are preeminent. That's why we're where we're at today. This goes back centuries. All liberal theologians agree. No propositional truth, because that would mean that in Revelation, God tells us what to believe and what to do. And that would contradict the most fundamental principle of liberal epistemology, that human autonomous thought has the final word. If Carl Truman, if you're listening, hold on. <laughs> if you're listening, you could write another a follow-up book to Strange New World. Do you remember that great book? If you haven't read it, I commend it to you. You should. Because he traced a philosophical history to help us understand how it is that we have come to this postmodern place where we feel so foreign. He could do that with liberal theologians. He, and he could predate Schleiermacher, but he certainly would spend a chapter or two on Friedrich Schleiermacher. Did you hear the word autonomous? Autonomous thought is the final word. And so if you're in an argument with somebody, well, this is how I feel about it, that settles the ants, the score. Is it any wonder that there was a fertile field for postmodernism? This is Friedrich Schleiermacher does not believe that the scriptures, confessions, and creeds of the church are important to theology. Huh. Where do you get your framework for living, your understanding about God? You guessed it, derived from religious feelings. For Schleiermacher, the propositions of theology must be derived from non-propositions, from feelings. Since people feel differently about different things, it's difficult to imagine how any level of theological agreement could be reached, or how anyone could even argue one theological position against another. That, those are the words of John Frame, and he's right, but that doesn't stop them. His doctrine, Schleiermacher's doctrine of God is co-determinant of the, quote, feeling of absolute dependence. Why are you dependent on God? Because it feels like it. Well, doesn't the Bible say that? Doesn't matter what the Bible says. That isn't propositional truth. Your feelings are. Do you feel dependent on God? Then you're dependent on God. Oh, you don't. Then you're not. It's feelings driven. That is, God is the name of whatever it is we feel absolutely dependent on. Sin, not a violation of any particular command. 
He calls sin external and legalist. He thinks, probably better stated feels, that it's arbitrary that man's eternal life could be made contingent on one decision of one man at any moment in time. So he defines sin differently. Sensuous consciousness. What? Sensuous consciousness. A preoccupation with the world rather than God. What did Schleiermacher seek to do? Well, write his own religion, basically. And that is what liberalism has continued to do for centuries. Now, can we thank these German liberals for what we see today in culture where up is down and black is purple? Uh, Yeah, we can in part. Philosophers contributed. You had the romantic poets, if you recall. You, You had Nietzsche, Freud. Even Oscar Wilde contributing to the undermining of Christian verities, that there is just truth, and it is outside of us. It is indeed knowable, and it is determined by another. Uh, They would say it's determined by feelings. That's what worldly philosophers taught, and so did German liberal theologians like Friedrich Schleiermacher. Thanks. Friedrich, this is Wretched Radio. Might I, first of all, thank you for the hundreds of wretches who supported Masters Academy International last year. And if you are now perhaps intrigued by what they do at Masters Academy International, would encourage you to check them out. Yes, we're doing a Bible distribution program with them, but they're training pastors around the globe. Seminary trained students at the Masters Seminary return to their native land and they get plugged into a Masters Academy International mini seminary outlet where they teach indigenous pastors how to rightly divide the word of truth. It's brilliant. And these indigenous pastors trained at the Masters Seminary train indigenous pastors. Brilliant. It is a wonderful ministry and you could be supporting a pastor, you could be supporting a seminary overseas and you'll be strengthening the local church. You can do that at wretched.org slash pastor, wretched.org slash pastor. Well, in a world that is undeniably cluttered with quick fixes and superficial solutions, now comes a journey into the heart of real change. I'm talking about Transformed Season 3. It's finally here, and we're inviting you into the lives of individuals that are facing the giants of fear and guilt and grief. But hey, there's a twist. These aren't your typical battles. These battles have been fought with the sword of the spirit and the shield of faith. You'll witness loneliness and overeating and relational tension met with grace, truth, and love that can only come from the one who knows us the best. This season's not just about watching others. It's about seeing yourself and your struggles and the path to true transformation through biblical counseling. We'll together dive deep into the heart of what it means to be transformed. Transformed Season 3 can be found right now at wretched.org slash transformed3. Who will speak for those who are staggering to the slaughter? Seems like right now would be a good time to encourage you to support Preborn Ministries. They're in it. It's a little complex out there with the internet and ordering pills. They're in the game. They're working hard to save babies and save mommies and daddies with the gospel. So if you are energized about life, that's something you can do. You can support Preborn. They provide free ultrasounds despite the accusations of all pro-life clinics. They are holistic. They do care about the mommy too. And they care for the family and they provide training. And it is literally a way that if you have the means, you can be saving a life. Amazing ministry. Preborn.org slash wretched. Preborn.org slash wretched. Books of the Bible The book of Obadiah is a prophecy against the nation of Edom, who were descendants of Jacob's brother, Esau. Obadiah's message is clear. God will punish those who persecute his people. 
When you face troubles of any kind, turn to the Lord. Renew your faith in Him, for He cares for His people. This is Wretched Radio with Todd Friel. Welcome back to the Jimmy Hour, formerly known as Wretched Radio. <laughs> All right, Jimmy, here we go. You didn't like the ER deathbed scene or Emo Phillips. That I, I didn't, didn't do anything for you? I didn't say I didn't like him. But you didn't pick. Okay, I'll give you more options. Okay. How did the New Testament canon develop? This is Michael Kruger from RTS. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. That sounds good. I like Michael. I do, I do too. I, I've never met the fellow. He's definitely a scholar, but he speaks, well, he's kind of like J.C. Ryle, the Anglican who died in 1900. Smart, that's obvious, but speaks in a way where it's like, I get that. I love guys that have the, the ability uh, to take academics and and not like totally obliterate them into the, the level of kindergarten, but it, it, it put it on a shelf where most of us can reach it. Michael J. Kruger, one of those guys. Ehrman often claims in regards to the New Testament canon. That- By the way, he's talking about Bart Ehrman. Bart Ehrman, who mm-hmm. actually, I think he went to Moody or Wheaton and got his a seminary degree. Bart Ehrman is now a rank atheist. Woo! And he makes a living fighting against Jesus now. Ehrman often claims in regards to the New Testament canon that uh, early Christians had a variety of New Testament canons at their disposal. He often talks about what he calls wild diversity within early Christianity. That in the early centuries of the church, people were reading all sorts of books. There was all sorts of different types of versions of Christianity with their own gospels and their own documents. And so it gives this impression that we have this sort of competing uh, a set of books where the New Testament canon was in some sense a literary free-for-all, where no one knew which were the right books and no one knew which were the wrong books and everyone was kind of doing their own thing. Now, that type of presentation certainly has a lot of rhetorical advantages and can certainly uh, sound overwhelming to any student that's not aware of the issues in early Christianity. The problem is that it's entirely misleading in the way it describes the way the canon developed. Yep. If one wants to portray the New Testament canon as developing in a way that was entirely haphazard and open-ended until the fourth century, that's simply not the case. When we look into the early centuries of the church, particularly the second century, we realize that the core of the New Testament canon was in place almost from the very beginning. What do we mean by core? What we mean is the four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and at least 10, if not 13 epistles of Paul. For example, one of our earliest canonical lists, the Muratorian Fragment, dates from the late second century, probably around 170 or 180 AD. In that particular document, it is clear that there's only four gospels that are received, and it lists all of 13 of Paul's epistles. Hmm. Now, that's in the middle of the second century. Now, what that tells you then is that the Muratorian fragment, that canonical list, didn't make up those things. It's obviously picking up earlier tradition. What we see then is that there's a core of New Testament books that were never really in dispute at all. There was never really a dispute about the Gospels in any fundamental way. It was these four from the very start. When it came to Paul's epistles, the core were in place from the very beginning. When we talk about any disputes at all, if we can even use that term, it really has to do with just a handful of books. Some of the peripheral books, 2nd and 3rd John, Jude, uh, and 2nd Peter are the primary books that discussions center upon. But to portray the New Testament canon as entirely open-ended is entirely misleading uh, because the core was there from the start. And if the core was there from the start, then decisions were already made about the divinity of mm-hmm. Jesus. Decisions were already made about who he was and what he came to do. Decisions were already made about the nature of the gospel message. Irregardless of what was decided about Second Peter or Jude, the trajectory of Christianity was already determined from a very early time. You can have confidence. The early church agreed the Bible you hold in your hands is the Bible. Not extras. Not pseudepigraphal books, not apocryphal books. Nope. The ones that you have. Now, Jimmy, I know what you're thinking as program director. What am I thinking? You're wondering what I happen in my treasure chest of recently discovered sound files. Have anything from Bart Ehrman himself. Oh, yeah. I was definitely thinking that. I, I knew so. Makes great radio. It's, I hope so. This is Bart Ehrman. He does not believe in the deity of Jesus Christ. But that doesn't mean this fellow, who makes a pretty handsome living fighting against the deity of Jesus Christ, doesn't deny the existence of Jesus Christ. Did Julius Caesar exist? Did Cicero exist? 
Did Socrates or Aristotle or Mark Antony? Almost no one questions whether these people existed. So why is there so much controversy around the question, did Jesus exist? I can assure you, as a historian, that whatever else you might want to say about Jesus, he certainly existed. The historical Jesus may not have been the person that people imagine today, but he was a real person, and we can know some things about him. That is an atheist who's an historian assuring you, yeah, he really existed. Yeah, I, you know what, Jimmy, in listening to his tone, now I don't know if it's changed over the years, I, he's clearly an atheist. He clearly puts in a lot of energy into writing and speaking against the deity of Jesus Christ. But he sounds like a pleasant enough bloke, doesn't he? he yeah, yeah. Maybe, that, maybe that's just that remnants of being around all those Christians for so long. <laughs> all right, so here's Bart Ehrman. I don't know what this one is about. This is Bart Ehrman on the Colbert Show. Well, this ought to be a ride for sure. Why is the Bible a big fat lie and I'm an idiot for believing it? <laughs> I shouldn't laugh at Stephen Colbert, but sorry, that was kind of funny. <laughs> Why is the Bible a big fat lie and I'm an idiot for believing it? <laughs> Scholars for a long time have said that the Bible is filled with discrepancies and contradictions. None that I read. Uh, right. None of the scholars I read, sir. Uh-huh. Uh, the Bible has books that claim to be written by people who didn't really write them. Uh, and the Bible no, uh, uh, shows that, in fact, some of the earliest uh, teachings of Jesus uh, aren't what became the standard doctrines of Christianity. What are you that, talking that's about? Just, well, things like that, that's, just, that's just wrong. It's just wrong. And the only reason that I can imagine that a smart fellow like Bart Ehrman would attempt to marshal together these uh, revisions of church history is just because of his attitude toward Jesus Christ. He isn't the only fellow who once professed to be a Christian who now spends a lot of calories trying to fight against Jesus. I think of Dan Barker. He's from the Freedom From Religion Foundation. Dan Barker travels around the country. He runs a foundation warring against Jesus Christ, and he once used to be, I guess you could call it a pastor. He traveled with Catherine Coleman, and Catherine Coleman's miracles, which she purported to do on stage, uh, he wasn't feeling it. And it dawned on him, I, I think I've got Dan's story right. He was traveling around with Catherine Coleman. Uh, she was a precursor. She was the female Benny Hinn. And she was supposedly doing miracles, and they all knew she wasn't. But the promises were there. You just have enough faith. You speak it. You believe it. And you're going to be healthy. And he was driving around following after the crusade. And his car broke down, and he found himself on the side of the road asking, where's the blessing for me? Where, where's all the good stuff for me? And he jettisoned his profession, even though it obviously wasn't credible. And now he spends his day fighting against Jesus Christ. There, there, there's, that can be the only motive. And making a living dealing with your animosity toward the one you want, once professed. All right, Jimmy? Yes? Are you ready to continue? I am. Playing, what are you playing? Program, <laughs> program director. That's it. All righty. Uh, this would be how to make your child a false convert. Oh, that sounds interesting. I don't think we have time for that one. So, oh, oh, no, the word that I can listen just, to that one. You should know better. I should. The, the timing. <laughs> got Paul Harvey's If I Were the Devil. If you, oh, this is a, these are all so good. If you don't know, don't shoot. How about, yeah. how about a little pro life clip from. The Ancient of Days files. I think the default position has to be a pro-life position. Here's the reason why. There's only two possibilities objectively. Either that thing that you abort is a human person with a right to life or it isn't. And there are only two possibilities in your mind. Either you know what it is or you don't know what it is. So there's only four possibilities. It's a person and you know it. It's a person and you don't know it. It's not a person and you know that. And it's not a person and you don't know that. So what is abortion in these four cases? If it's not a person and you know that it's not abortion, abortion is fine. In the other three cases, it's not. If it is a person and you know that it's a person and you intend to kill it, abortion is murder. 
If it's a person and you don't know that it's a person, but you kill it anyway, knowing that you don't know that it is a person, that's manslaughter. That's like running over a man-shaped overcoat in the street thinking that it might be a human being and it might be just an overcoat, but you don't know. Or like shooting at a movement in the bush when you're hunting, and it might be a deer and it might be your fellow hunter, but you don't know. Well, don't shoot, for goodness sakes. <laughs> Third possibility. It is not a human being. It's not a human person. Uh, but you don't know that. And you shoot anyway. Well, that's not manslaughter, but it is criminal negligence. Uh, if this room had to be fumigated and the fumes would kill little children... Uh, and they asked the janitor, are there any little children in that room? And the janitor said, oh, I don't know. I don't care. Just fumigate. If there was a child in the room, it would be manslaughter. Even if it's not there, it's criminal negligence. So if you don't know, for God's sake, don't shoot. Uh-huh. Don't know. Don't abort. But we do know. So therefore, don't abort. This is Wretched Radio. God has given the church many gifts for the building up of the body. One gift is exhortation, the spiritual ability to encourage, comfort, and admonish God's people. Whether God's people are oppressed, confused, or in error, God has provided the gift of exhortation to comfort, urge, and correct them. This is Wretched Radio with Todd Friel. No, Charles Spurgeon is not the evangelical pope. We, of course, know that's Dr. John MacArthur. But when Charles Spurgeon speaks, we do well to listen. This is Wretched Radio. There are countless Christians who have pondered the question that the Prince of Preachers decided to dedicate a topical sermon to And that is the subject of infant salvation. What happens to babies when they die? Charles Spurgeon, known perhaps for his fiery, lion-like preaching, nevertheless, in this particular sermon on infant salvation, reveals a pastor's heart that while everybody in the congregation has not experienced the loss of an infant, He nevertheless wanted to preach a tender word to them. And so it is, we read from a transcript from Charles Spurgeon's topical sermon on infant salvation, an exclamation. This this isn't a, well, we're going to take a look at infant infant salvation and we'll try to come up with some conclusions and apply it and you make your own decisions. No, he was emphatic about this. He was determined to let anybody who had suffered the loss of a child know beyond the shadow of a doubt, your child is in heaven. Quote, let every mother and father here present know assuredly that it is well with the child. That's a quote from Second Kings, the Shunammite woman. Remember her child died. She said, it is well with the child. What do we think she was alluding to? The child was dead. How could it be well with the child unless... The afterlife were in view. Charles Spurgeon playing on the it is well with the child. If God has taken away your child in infant days and you never heard its declaration of faith because it wasn't capable, the child didn't get baptized, they never made a profession of faith. Nevertheless, you may rest assured that it is well with the child, well in a higher and better sense than it is well with yourselves, well without limitation. Well, without exception, well, infinitely, well, eternally. How did he go about the business of making his biblical case? Because it doesn't matter what Charles Spurgeon thought. The question is, what does the Bible say about babies who die? It isn't silent. We've produced multiple videos on this subject historically, and you can go view those on the YouTube machine. Listing verse after verse. I think I think we presented 22, 24 verses from the Old and New Testament that emphatically lead us to a conclusion that babies who die are not damned. They are welcomed into the loving arms of God. And that's where Charles Spurgeon begins. Argument number one. And you might state, that might be the weakest argument because it's not a declarative Bible verse. This is not an explicit text that says babies who die go to heaven. 
But instead, he bases his first argument on the totality of Scripture. Do you recall what are the three top descriptors of the Bible regarding the character and nature of God? Good, able, faithful. And so it is Charles Spurgeon begins making his case by stating it would be incongruous with the kind, loving nature of God for him to damn millions of babies. Remember, at the time this sermon was preached, mid-19th century, one-third, give or take, one-third of babies died. Delivery or very early on. We're talking about a lot of babies here that couldn't hear and respond to the gospel. It doesn't make sense that God would damn them. Now, I recognize that there are some complexities to the subject. How do they go to heaven if they didn't have faith? By grace, are you saved through faith? Well, we would say that it too is a gift of God and that God in his kindness, because they did not accrue a sin debt because they were not willfully sinning against the maker, they they don't have a debt to him. Therefore, he doesn't damn them to make a payment on a debt they have not accrued for themselves. And so it is, Charles Spurgeon writes this. We ground our conviction very much upon the goodness and the nature of God. We say that the opposite doctrine, that some infants perish and are lost, is altogether repugnant to the idea which we have of him whose name is love. If we had a God whose name was Moloch, if God were an arbitrary tyrant without benevolence or grace, we could suppose some infants being cast into hell. Our God, who hears the young ravens when they cry, certainly will find no delight in the shrieks and cries of infants cast away from his presence. That is not just the heart of a shepherd, although it certainly reveals Spurgeon's pastoral heart. He's basing the argument on what we know about God. And this is a good reminder to us, especially those of us who are conservative. We love studying righteousness and wrath and justice. We love it. We could carry on all day about the reprobation of God for sinners damned to hell. Have we forgotten that God is love? That God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, that in this is love, not that we first loved him, but that he loved us? Charles Spurgeon wants to call our attention to the goodness of God. We read of him that he is so tender that he cares for oxen, that he would not have the mouth of the ox muzzled who treads on corn. No, he cares for the bird upon the nest and would not have the mother bird killed while sitting upon its nest with its little ones. He made ordinances and commands even for irrational creatures. He finds food for the most loathsome animal. Uh, do we think that this God would damn children who didn't hear the gospel, didn't have the ability to respond to the gospel? Babies who were aborted, there are millions of them. That this God of love would damn them? That's Charles Spurgeon's First argument, however, number two, Jonah, petulant Jonah, would have Nineveh perish. And God gave it as the reason why Nineveh should not be destroyed, that there might, that there were in it six score thousand infants who knew not their right hand from their left. These, these, these were little children that are there. If he spared Nineveh, that their mortal life might be spared, think you that their immortal souls shall be needlessly cast away? I only put it to your own reason. If not a case where we meet much argument, would your God cast away an infant? If you, I am happy to say, he is not the God that I adore. Number three. One of the strongest arguments to be found is the fact that Scripture positively states that the number of saved souls at the last will be very great. In Revelation, souls beyond number, the psalmist speaks of them as numerous as drops from the womb of the morning. Many passages to Abraham, you're going to be the lots and lots of people are going to believe through you because of you, Abraham, that heaven is going to be packed. And Charles Spurgeon then 
recognizes the obvious. How small a part of the map could be called Christian? Look at it. Out of that part, which could be called Christian, how small a portion of them would bear the name of believer? How few would be said to have a nominal attachment to the church of Christ? Out of this, how many are hypocrites and know not the truth? I do not see it possible unless indeed the millennium age should soon come and then far exceed a thousand years. I do not see how it is possible that so vast a number should enter heaven unless it be on the supposition that infant souls constitute the great majority. That's Spurgeon. Number four, David, you know the the story. He's praying, he's fasting while his child is sick. When the child dies, he gets up. People wonder what's up with that. And David proclaims, I'm going to go to my child. It is highly unlikely he'd be eating a sandwich, thinking about being buried, simply put in the ground, dying to be with the child. It was clearly a statement that he believed his son was going to go be with Yahweh. Number five, out of the mouths of babes and sucklings, he has perfected praise. The coming out of Egypt was a type of the redemption of the chosen seed. And you know that in that case, the little ones were to go forth. Not even a hoof was to be left behind. Why not children in the greater deliverance to join in the song of Moses than of the Lamb? Number six, we must pick up even the crumbs and do as our master did. Gather up the fragments that nothing be lost. The passage in Ezekiel chapter 16, 21st verse, God is censuring his people for having given up their little infants to Moloch. Yikes. Thou hast slain my children and delivered them to cause and caused them to pass through the my children. He wouldn't call souls his children. Number seven in the first chapter of Deuteronomy, a threatening pronounced on the children of Israel in the wilderness. They would never see the promised land. Your little ones, which ye said should be a prey and your children, which in that day had no knowledge between good and evil, they shall go in thither. Why would the children go into the land without faith? Great question. Because God is good, he is able, and he is faithful. No distinction between pagan children, Christian children. The Prince of Preachers was emphatic. Babies who die are with a God who is good and able and faithful. This is Wretched Radio. Are you ready to go on an adventure that tackles life's biggest questions head on? Well, we invite you to join John Fabares and Jake Ream on a riveting journey in Road Trip to Truth Season 4. This season, they're hitting the road to explore deep questions about sin, atheism, racism, and the very nature of truth itself. Through candid conversations with university students and wisdom from experts, this season delivers some unwavering answers from a biblical perspective. Whether it's understanding the reality of heaven and hell, navigating the complexities of marriage, or uncovering the truths about money and forgiveness, Road Trip to Truth Season 4 will be your guide. It's perfect for youth groups, families, or anyone who seeks to defend their faith with confidence. Road Trip to Truth has been more than a series. It's a tool for sparking meaningful discussions and inspiring a commitment to the gospel. So if you're ready to head out on a road trip, buckle up for the truth. Road Trip to Truth Season 4, available now at wretched.org slash 4. Record number of children are attending the Tomorrow Clubs in Africa. You should see the videos. Hundreds of kids run to meet at a Tomorrow Club in Africa. Why? Because Tomorrow Clubs, they're weekly kids meeting clubs where the kids, yep, they get some treats, but they get the gospel. They get the Bible. They get Bible memorization. Remember, we used to force our kids to do that, but now that we're oppressors, we don't want to be toxic and make our kids memorize Bible verses when it's about a gazillion times easier than when you get old. And they worship the Lord, they pray together, and they get loved on. Tomorrow clubs, I'm telling you, record-breaking. The images are so encouraging, so cool, and I would encourage you to consider being a Tomorrow Club partner. One dollar per child per month encourage you to please consider supporting the great ministry tomorrowclubs.org slash wretched tomorrowclubs.org slash wretched.
Hey, thanks for listening to Wretched Radio today. We know that many of you have stood with us in the past, but we also know that it was more than just a one-time gesture. It was a step, a connection, a moment where your faith and your trust in us meant something. You handed us a torch. Now, just think about it. Imagine if you could stand firm with us as an ongoing monthly gospel partner. We're talking about taking the torch that we started and adding fuel to it, illuminating the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ to even more souls. We're asking if you could join us, not just for a moment, but for a mission. It's more than a financial commitment, and we hope that you realize that. It is a partnership, a gospel partnership, and the one and only thing in this world that matters at the end of time. Everything else burns away, but what we do with the gospel stands for eternity. The details, well, you can find them right now at wretched.org slash donate. Wretched. Amazing grace. Amazing gospel. Titles of Christ In the Bible, Jesus is given many titles that teach us about who He is and what He has done. Jesus is called the Advocate. When we as God's redeemed people sin, Jesus is our Advocate before the Father. It is on the basis of Christ's righteousness that we are saved, not our own works. This is Wretched Radio with Todd Friel. How should you think about Jesus? The answer is, it depends. This is Wretched Radio. If you have sinned, you need to remember that Jesus is indeed a friend of sinners. He's meek and lowly, and his burden, it is light. He is the Lamb of God who lived a life and was sacrificed on your behalf in submission to the Father. When you sin, that is how you should think about Jesus. When you're sinned against, you should think about Jesus as revealed in the book of Revelation. Scary Jesus, terrifying Jesus, Avenger Jesus. Let me share with you a quote from a dead guy, a Puritan, this from Grace Gems, quoting Psalm 12, verse 5. Because of the oppression of the weak and the groaning of the needy, I will now arise, says the Lord. I will protect them from those who malign them. Here's Winslow. Never are the ungodly committed to a mistake more suicidal and fatal. Let me me make that contemporary. Unregenerate men make the biggest mistake of their lives when they lay the hand of injustice and oppression upon the saints of the Most High. God is for them. He is the avenger of all those who put their trust in him, the widow and the fatherless, and those who touch them touch the apple of his eye. The God of the Christians is a strong Lord. All that strength, it's on the side of his people. For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong on behalf of those whose heart is perfect toward him. Consider this truth that the Lord is the strength of his people and the avenger of all who are oppressed. The Lord stands up for his oppressed ones. He's the avenger of all such. It is God who avenges me, says David. Leave him, O my soul, to vindicate your character, to redress your wrong, to rid you of your adversary. And he'll bring forth your righteousness as the light and your judgment as the noonday. That is what will be the fruit born out of considering Jesus the avenger when you have been sinned against. In Christ, you are the apple of God's eye. And because he has kept a record of the wrongs committed against you, the person who harmed you has made a very grievous mistake. Let's dwell on the recompense that they will receive from the avenger who will seek, find, and destroy every unredeemed sinner who's ever sinned against you Your avenger is going to crush your enemies. So whatever awful deed has been done to you, the Lion of Judah, 
not the gentle lamb, the lion of Judah will pursue your nemesis and demolish them. And he will do it for all of eternity. Dwell on it. Think about it. Because if you have been really wounded and it's lingering and it's not healing, whatever the abuse was, somebody pressured you to abort your child. Oh, wow. Wow. And, 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 and you can't heal. You can't get over this. Let's dwell on what Jesus, the avenger, is going to do to the person who committed such a horrible act and gave you such wicked advice, told you lies, deceived you, and maybe coerced you to commit a sin that you still can't get out of your heart. Or you have been, you, you, you were in an accident. Somebody was a drunk driver. Oh, man. And you, you, because of it, you can predict the weather well. Your joints, the bones, whatever it is that doesn't work like it used to. Rest assured, your God saw it. He tolerated that, that evil act, but he hasn't forgotten it. He's recorded every event in his book, Revelation 2012. And he's going to slay your abuser. He'll extend no mercy. He'll grant no reprieve from the unrelenting punishment that he will dole out on them. That's why we are told in Romans 12, never take your own revenge. Leave room for the wrath of God. Who's going to do a better job at vengeance? You or Avenger Jesus? Why not just be patient? Let it go and let him deal with it. He's going to do it better. Revelation 19. I saw heaven open. Behold, a white horse. And he who sat on it is called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire on his head, many diadems. And he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself, clothed with a robe dipped in blood. The word of God and the armies in heaven clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. That might be you, depending on timing. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God. And on his robe and on his thigh is written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Let him deal with it. Let him deal with it. You, you, you prefer that. Because he's going to do it better. He'll do it exactly right. He will exact the correct payment. You can't. You, you can't do it. So let your avenger, knowing that you have one who has been fully aware of what you've been suffering, and he's going to avenge you because you are the apple of your eye, of his eye. And maybe because of this wound, you've been, you've been living like a second-class Christian, you think. But I would challenge you if you feel like, well, boy, something really dirty was done to me. Oh, okay, maybe, 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 maybe I'm a Christian, but I'm, I'm, I'm in coach. Nope, there's only first class Christians. There's, there's, there's no comfort zone or whatever they call it these days. There's, there's no coach. There's only first class for Christians. And that includes you. You, you, you feel like you have been so damaged that God couldn't possibly want you. Or if people knew about this, oh, how embarrassing, how shameful. I would challenge you to do what I challenged our Bible study group to do. Go look for the Bible verse that says that God has tears of Christians, that there are some Christians that are in excellent standing with God and some that are in pretty good standing. Well, barely. Go ahead, find that verse. We'll wait right here. You're not going to find that verse. If anyone is in Christ, you're a new creation. Anyone. So no matter what somebody has done to you, you don't need to be ashamed. King Jesus is going to deal with them. So if you've been feeling like, oh, I am kind of a back row Christian, your thinking is wrong. And facts now need to speak to your feelings. So here's the facts. You are in first class in God's economy. You, you, you're, you're in totally, completely. Whatever thoughts 
run through your mind as you ponder your past. Correct theology must be applied to your thinking. God loves you no less than he loves any other individual that he has brought into Christ. There are no second-class Christians in God's kingdom. Can you believe that? Can you rest in that? Can you trust that? I wonder how many years it's been for you. How many years has it been? And it's still vivid, isn't it? You can run that film in your mind. Whoa, it is as clear today as the day that it happened. Would you take some time today to rest in the knowledge that your Avenger has got your back and your front and your sides and your tops and your bottoms? And you then can remember that Isaiah 118 didn't say that some of you are white as snow, others cream colored, others still have some crimson stains besmirched on you. Nope, white as snow. In Christ, whatever, what, whatever, whatever was done to you will be dealt with, and it will be horrific. Horrific. I would like to challenge you to spend some time today thinking about this from two perspectives. Number one, what is going to happen to the person who did that to you? And, 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 and let it linger there until you start to feel even a slight shift in your emotions toward that person. I'm not saying this, this needs to be accomplished today, but start. And then second, I would encourage you to consider it from your perspective that you don't have to feel like a back row believer anymore. You, you don't, you were sinned against. You didn't even commit the sin. And, and, and yet you're, 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 you're allowing it to linger. And I understand that. I, I, I genuinely get that. That's entirely human. But Jesus would like to remove that feeling of shame that you have. He'd like to take it away. Why don't you spend some time thinking about Jesus the Avenger today? And let him do that. And until tomorrow, go serve your king.